This is the word of God. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. As we shift gears now into our teaching time, I also want to take a moment and introduce and welcome our guest preacher, Mr. Brian Gray. Now, in addition to being uh, just a smidge related to one of our elders, Brian has also spent the last 30 years or so in ministry himself as a church planter and as an elder at a couple different churches up in the nation of Alaska. And all of that he has done non-vocationally, in other words, as a volunteer, while also somehow running an engineering company all these years as well. So apparently he doesn't sleep. Brian, you want to come on up and we'll... Sound City, can we welcome our brother Brian? We are blessed to have you here. We're grateful for you and grateful for your family in so many ways. And Brian, this morning, is going to be leading us through part two of our little mini-series called Things That Are Hard to Do. And so if it's okay with you, I'll go ahead and pray for us and then hand things over to you. All right. Lord God, we're thankful for our brother Brian and just for the grays and uh, all they mean to us in so many ways. We're, we're grateful for the word that you've been stirring in Brian's heart just to share today about doing hard things. You call us to do hard things, uh, as we'll see unpacking, being unpacked in the sermon. Um, you call us to do hard things not because you just want to see us squirm, but because you love us. And um, in, in giving you glory in all that we do in our lives, we also experience the most joy. And so you stir us to those hard things so that we might experience our greatest joy in you. And so I pray we would learn that lesson well, that you'd give us uh, open minds and open hearts, soft hearts to hear what our brother has to say. And we pray all this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Well, thanks for having me here. It's a joy to be here, and uh, things that are uh, hard to do. Uh, hopefully, you're not uh, full of anxiety thinking the scripture passage means we're starting a, a fundraising for a building project, because that would be an awkward thing to uh, talk about. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about sharing the gospel, about the mission of God, and uh, we're taking it uh, from a kind of obscure passage of a minor prophet in the Old Testament. And uh, so just to kind of set it up, we have to remember that the entire Bible, and I know you're taught this, but just to be reminded again today, the entire Bible is one continuum. It, it's not a bunch of individual little stories. It's a collection of writings that all point to one ultimate answer, which is found in Jesus. And there's many places in the New Testament where we're told that everything in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing. It was pointing forward to what we now have in Jesus. And we're even told that the prophets of long ago longed to see what we have the privilege of seeing now that we live 
in the time after the, the great work of the cross. So that's what we're doing, and, uh, and we're going to get this from this uh, book of Haggai. We're going to do a few things to get there first. So my kind of big idea for the day is that all of God's dealings with us are ultimately for his glory and for our good. And, uh, you know, we can see that in, in so many areas of our personal growth and sanctification, studying scripture, praying, worship, things like that that build us up. That's for my good, but it glorifies God. Great commission. Go, share the gospel with all creation. Okay, well, I could see how that could spread the glory of God, but uh, I benefit from that? Hmm, let's think about that. So there's a quote I found recently from our early church father, Irenaeus, and, and it says that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And so we have um, been created in the image of God. We are his image bearers. And um, so when we are acting true to our image, to what we were created to be, we do display the glory of God, and we do find satisfaction and joy in that because we're being true to our nature of, of how we were created. And throughout time, God's been on a mission. Since the first humans uh, sinned in the garden, God's been on a mission to redeem broken humanity. And he has been drawing to himself a people of his own where he can display his glory and his grace. And so if we are created in God's image, for us to experience the fullness of that and really the fullness of life, we need to participate in the great work of God, this mission of God to redeem broken humanity. And um, that is how we experience a life that is thriving and fulfilling because we're being true to what we were created to be and we're putting his glory on display. Our natural mind tends to resist this. We have our own ways of thinking, our own little wisdom and our own priorities, and we often tend to find that in contrast with the things that God is calling us to and challenging us. And this is stated real clearly by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55. He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And we tend to have this wrestling match where we think we know how it's ought to be and God is challenging us and saying, no, I, I operate according to a little different operating system. And, uh, and we're at odds with him. But the context of this passage, if you read all of Isaiah 58, it's really about grace and mercy. And this seems to be the area where our conflict is the most pronounced. He opens it up saying, come, buy and eat. Experience the richest affair at no cost. I've got great things for you. And then he says, let the wicked forsake his way. And find mercy, for our God is merciful. And so this idea of God being merciful on undeserving wicked sinners, on giving good things to undeserving people, it kind of challenges our practical ways of thinking. Maybe for us, uh, we may have a hard time receiving that mercy. Uh, At at some point, I think every one of us struggles with, uh, if you only knew what I have done. You know that I'm unworthy of that, or maybe we receive it with joy, like the uh, the one servant, and then we want to go out and choke the neck of a different person who's uh, committed a sin that we consider worse than us. You know, but uh, this grace and mercy is just tough for us to uh, receive it and to give it. And, and the bad news is that left to ourselves, um, we're just going to oppose and resist God. And this stuff isn't going to work. 
And if we stopped there, it would be really awkward, right? The good news is we aren't left to ourselves. Through Christ, we've been given, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, a new mind. Let's read this. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So if we really want to embrace God's way of thinking... We have to start out by just believing that in Christ, not only have I been given a new heart, I've been given a new mind. I can think differently as the Spirit is renewing and redeeming my mind. And so in Christ, we're given this new heart and a new mind, and so we need to take off kind of the human way of thinking of things that are in opposition to God and put on the glasses so we see things according to the kingdom of God. And that's a theme of what I'm teaching today, kind of our natural mind, our own way of going at things, and then the ways of God and his way of seeing things and, and seeing things through the mind of Christ. And on this topic of sharing the gospel, uh, we all have different objections. And... Uh, our natural mind just kind of bristles at the challenge to go out and live on mission and share the gospel. But um, in Haggai, I see answers to a couple of our most strong objections. And the first one I'd say is the cost. Uh, I like to think of uh, Luke 10. We're not going to go there, but you might want to read it on your own if you're not that familiar with the story. It's referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we have this story of a, uh, a Jew who is uh, robbed and beaten and left in the ditch to die. And two of his fellow Jews pass by the other side of the road, turn their head the other way, I'm not going to get involved, and they leave him there to suffer and die. And then a Samaritan, who should have been an enemy of this Jew, stops, interrupts his travel plans, tends to the wounded man, puts him on his donkey, hauls him into town, uh, puts up uh, the, the money to take care of him at an inn, tells the innkeeper, do whatever it takes to nurse him back to health, put it on my tab, I'm going to pay for it. And so we see in this story a guy who uh, paid money. He, he paid the cost, the physical cost of this man's care, but he also interrupted his travel plans and let his time. He, you know, he had a place to go, and he stopped, and he interrupted his travel to take care of this person. And then there's also a cost of reputation, because in that day, Jews didn't associate with Samaritans and the other way around. And here he's parading through the village with a, a Jew, an enemy, on his donkey and taking him into the hotel and, and footing the bill for him. Living on mission... To really participate in the mission of God, it will cost us in all of these areas. It will cost us in money, it will cost us in time, and it will cost us in reputation. So now we want to go to the book of Haggai, and we're going to back up to chapter 1 and read a little passage about the cost. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. 
You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So the first part of this passage is, is a challenge. Um, God's making some observations about life. They've been living their life according to their mind, their own priorities. And God's saying, how's that working out for you? And the re- reality is it isn't working out so good. And I think if we're honest, all of us at times feel the futility of this passage. You know, we, we just think we're catching up on our bills and the car blows up. Or, you know, we just feel like a, sometimes a hamster on a treadmill, just running but never getting ahead. And God's speaking right to this issue to these people. Like, you know, you're working hard trying to take care of yourself, and it isn't working very good, is it? Now it flips, and there's a response, and he's challenging them to think differently. So picking it up at verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. So God wanted this temple, this place where he could display his glory and take pleasure in it. And he didn't need the help of man. It's not like God was homeless and destitute and and just dependent on man to put a roof over his head. Uh, Isaiah 66 says, The heavens my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you build for me? So God's clearly not needing our help to build his house. But he is graciously inviting his people to participate in it so they can have a part in his great work. And they were ignoring his call because they had other priorities. And God is challenging them to reconsider, have a change of heart, have a change of mind. And this theme is restated by Jesus. Matthew 6, he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seeking first the kingdom costs. Other things in our life have to take a backseat, a lower priority to the things that God calls us to. And our natural mind says, well, I can't afford that. But the mind of Christ would say, well, I really can't afford not to have that. And this passage deals directly with the material cost to do the things that God calls us to do, to take in the homeless, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry. It costs literal money. And if we're going to do that, we have to think about, well, what is the source of that money, the funds that I have? What is the source of our material wealth? Is it our own effort? Is it because we're so smart and we've worked so hard and been so disciplined that we have all these things? Or is it really the fact that God has been generous and gracious and has given us gifts and we are stewards of those gifts and managers? If he is our source, then the kingdom mindset would say he can provide more where that came from and I can share what I have with somebody who doesn't. I've 
been challenged for 30-some years as a Christian to put this into practice. And it's not easy. It's, it's, I'm as selfish as anybody else, right? I want my stuff for me. And, and it's a challenge to do that. But for over 30 years, we have been challenged in our family to, to invest in the mission of God. And we've invested corporately in the church and in nonprofits. But we've invested personally, just directly from us to an individual in a place of need where it was a gospel sharing opportunity and we could invest in them. And, you know, we've done this. So this is some new theory. It's been 30-plus years. And we don't live large, but we've never gone without our God has graciously and faithfully supplied all our needs according to his riches in glory. See, God is generous. And that generosity is expressed ultimately in he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us. That's the nature of God. And if we're created in his image, then to be fully alive, we need to be a generous people because then we're reflecting the nature of God. A human fully alive is one that is generous. We experience life and flourishing when we are living according to that nature that we're made to be generous. And not only that, our generosity displays the glory of God and it provides an opportunity for a testimony for the source of where that comes from. Now I'm here in a... um, one of the more affluent cities in America, which is one of the more affluent countries uh, on the world. And so maybe for uh, many of you, uh, like it is for me, the struggle isn't as much uh, financially, generosity. Uh, Maybe the bigger challenge is time. You know, I often find it's easier for me to make a donation to a good cause um, than to give up an evening or a weekend to live out the mission. And uh, our lives are challenged. As Shane said, I, I have a few things going on, and I tend to be pretty busy. And most of you do. you got kids and work and projects and all these things that are clamoring for your time. And so then I stand up here and say, you need to make time in your life to share the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. And you're like, yeah, right. Well, if God can provide financially so that we can be generous with our material wealth, can we believe that God, who is sovereign, can provide the time and space for us to accommodate a change priority when it's done unto him? See, uh, God created everything. He's not limited materially. God also isn't limited by a clock. Days like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. God, who is sovereign over all things, can make up the difference when we adjust some priorities to do that. And so, ultimately... To give our time, to give our treasure, our talent, those things, it really comes down to a question of faith. Are we trusting ourselves, our ability to make and manage our money, our ability to manage our time and be efficient and all of that stuff? Or do we actually trust God and just become a steward of the time and the resources that he's given to us? And that's what I really take away from this passage. God is challenging these people, instead of living your self-centered lives for your priorities, I want you to take on my priorities, and I'm going to take care of the rest. God knows that we need food and clothing and shelter and all of our natural needs, and he'll take care of that. But he's saying, I want you to put me first. I want you to put my great work ahead of the other stuff, and then I'll take care of it. Now, I said 
the cost comes in the time, money. The third category is reputation. And I think this falls into our second objection. So sometimes we object to the cost. I don't have the time. I can't afford it. I can't do it. Sometimes we just object to the thought of being in close proximity to, quote-unquote, sinful people, right? Just be honest with you. There's, a, there's an awkwardness sometimes that comes with a, a fear of being corrupted by putting ourselves in those settings. And, um, you know, in, in a way, we all want to kind of escape. You know, we find those safe people that we're comfortable with and we love to have our prayer meetings and our Bible study with and there's good fellowship. And then to kind of get out of that comfortable place and be immersed with somebody who's got a really jacked up life it's just kind of like yeah and and we want to you know kind of shy away from that and so uh here's the problem see this winter you're going to get back in the gospel of john john 17 is uh the high priestly prayer beautiful passage but in the middle of it's got a very troubling um, verse it says uh, jesus goes uh, father i don't pray that you take them out of the world i pray that you keep them safe from the evil one And see, we all at some level, once we're in Christ, want to kind of escape from this corrupt world. But Jesus very clearly left us here to be on mission. It requires an engagement with a broken world. We're called to be sent out like sheep among wolves. And and that's by intent, by God. So let's go back to Haggai. And there's this uh, kind of odd little question that gets thrown up in chapter 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, touches this fold with bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. In here there's a pretty clear statement of the natural order of things, that the unclean corrupts the clean. And we don't have ritual sacrifice, fortunately, but uh, you know, maybe our analogy is this afternoon we're, um, we're, we're cooking a steak on the grill, and it's like just, it's cooked to perfection. The moment is coming. We're taking the steak off the grill, and, and one of the kids uh, uh, kicks a ball across the yard, and it hits us in the leg, and we drop the steak on the ground. Did the dirt become delicious by contact with the steak? Or did the steak become defiled by contact with the filthy ground, right? You're like, I don't know if I want to eat that. You know? That's how the natural order of things works. And relationally, we kind of see it the same way. If I am in contact with that which is unclean, it's going to defile me. And that is the natural order of things. But we're called not to think according to the human intellect and mind, but to think according to the mind of Christ. And see, Jesus comes on the scene, and he flips that completely upside down. Let's look at Matthew 8. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. 
Now, leprosy in that day, contact with the leper was a potential death sentence. And the lepers were mandated to identify themselves as unclean, to live outside of the camp and avoid contact with people. If they came upon somebody to kind of identify, maybe calling out unclean, sometimes maybe ringing a bell, letting people know, hey, cut a wide path around me because I'm dangerous. And so the people in this culture, that was what they knew. And they see this guy coming up and approaching Jesus and, and begging him. Instead of avoiding him and calling out unclean, he goes straight up to Jesus. That right there violated all conventions. But then Jesus reaches out and puts a hand on him. And instead of the unclean defiling the clean, the power of God comes upon that man and the defiled one becomes clean. Jesus totally flips the natural order around. Now, Jesus could not only touch an infected person and not be made sick, he could sit at a dinner table with a tax collector and not become corrupted. He could have a woman with a uh, questionable sexual history lavish amazing affection on him and not be given place to lust because he lived to do the will of the Father. He had a single purpose here on earth, and he was living for the will of the Father. So his contact with the leper, his contact with the prostitute, his contact with the tax collector, it was about bringing the light of the kingdom of God into those places of darkness, contacting that which was corrupt and defiled and bringing whole and healing to it. Now, the natural mind, we want to isolate from those things that are unclean. But Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now think about, nobody ever reached further across the divide, clean to unclean, than the eternal, holy Son of God, leaving heaven and coming down and dwelling among a corrupt and defiled people. There's nothing more radical in reaching across the great divide than that. Now I do have to... pause here and give just a balancing caution because uh, Scripture does tell us things. Uh, We're told that bad company corrupts good character and we're not to be unequally yoked, good with evil. Um, There's a genuine risk here that we can become in fellowship with darkness. We can enter into relationships with things that are not good and we can become corrupted. So Jesus, he was always in total submission to the Father. He went where the Father told him to go. He spoke what the Father told him to say. And that's how it works with us. We need to be submitted to God's word and led by his spirit to, and then trust him protect us in our contact with the unclean. And I learned this lesson early as a Christian. So prior to my salvation, I uh, worked in bars as a drummer and um, late night and that whole corrupt scene, it was a very dark, dark place in my life. And a few months after I'd been saved, I kind of had this burden for my friends because the bartenders and the musicians and the clubbers. They were people I cared about, and and I wanted to go tell them about Jesus. So one Saturday night, I headed out at 10 o'clock, and I went into this bar that I used to work in, and I sat down and started talking with the people, and 
after I was there for about an hour, I just didn't feel right. And just the lights and the music and the scene, it was just kind of like, you know, this, I, I need to get out of here. And so I kind of ended my conversation as quickly as I could, and I headed out the door. And literally as I'm walking through the doorway, uh, the Lord spoke a, a verse to me. And I was a new Christian reading through the Gospels, and it was in, he sent the 72 out two by two. And I went, ah, that's what I did wrong. There's a method to his ways. And so I went and I found a man who was involved in discipling me, a more mature Christian, and I told him what I'd done. I said, would you go with me? And he said, sure. And so a week later, we go back out, and we ended up going to a couple of different bars uh, together as as a team. And... A totally different experience. I never felt like corrupted or defiled in any way. And I just learned something there. And this is one that we really need to remember. Mission is not a solo project. God wants us to do this together as the body of Christ. And it works better. There's a reason why he did that. And uh, Paula, is uh, my wife, is ultimately my mission partner, and, and we do almost everything together. And we have an unusual calling that I wouldn't necessarily expect uh, some, most of you to have, but we do strange things. You know, we've taken people out of the um, psychiatric ward in the hospital or a treatment center or jail at home to live with us. And uh, we've had people uh, go through withdrawal and detox in our house and just, you know, things like that that are, you know, definitely uh, challenging, I, I would say. But I can look back over decades of doing that stuff and honestly say we weren't corrupted or defiled by those things. And as re- the truth is, it, God used that in our sanctification. You know, seeing a person's life that's so broken makes me worship more because I'm more aware of what I have to be thankful for. And seeing a person with desperate needs that I don't have answers for causes me to pray and to dig into the Word more, to be able to offer them help. And so living on mission and being in contact with corrupt, defiled, sinful people God has actually used that as a sanctifying force in our lives, and it's good. Now, I also said it'll cost us reputation. You know, at some level, every one of us struggles with that thought of, you you know, you have the awkward conversation, and the person now thinks of you as a Jesus freak, and, you know, there's just all those kind of awkwardness that, that comes along with that. And for me, I think my area, we all struggle, reputation. If we're honest, we all struggle with this, and, and uh, where this comes up for me is uh, I volunteer as a uh, chaplain at our uh, prisons uh, periodically, and there are times when... Uh, that has put me in a relationship with a person who has committed a, a horrific crime, but they have genuinely repented and become a follower of Christ. And now they're my brother. And the day for their sentencing comes up, and, um, and so I'll go to court with them and sit behind them at their sentencing so they know they're not alone. They've got a brother with them. And, and the scene at the courtroom on a big, uh, high-profile sentencing like that is the newsroom will be packed with cameras all pointing at the defendant. And so then the 6 o'clock news comes on, and there's these cameras pointing at public enemy number one, and, oh, right behind him is Brian, you know? And, and so the guys I work with and my business and my clients and stuff are like, that's why you didn't answer your phone today? Like, what's wrong with you? And I, and I have to say, you know, it, it, it does feel a little uncomfortable, okay? There are things that living on mission will put you in a place where it's like, <laughs> and um, that's the reality. But here's the bottom line. Does their approval matter more than God's? 
Who do I ultimately answer to? Whose approval really defines my identity? And see, in Hebrews 2, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, sisters. And if the perfect holy son of God is not ashamed to call this broken, weak, fallible human being his brother, then what right do I have to want to push away and not associate with this person whose sin has landed them in a horrible place? That's how we deal with the reputation. We remember who it is that calls us his son and daughter, that calls us his brother and sister. We remember our identity, and then from that we're able to have grace on those. So our objections, time, money, reputation, being corrupted. Now let's turn the corner and let's talk about the motivation. Let's go back to Haggai 2. It says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. Now, the original temple that Solomon had built was huge and glorious, and people would travel for weeks just to see a display of the glory of God through this thing that had been built. It had been torn down and destroyed, and the people had come back to rebuild it, and they were building a much smaller scaled-down version of it, and they were having a pretty pathetic start. And so when I look at this, I think, you know, would version 2.0 really be more glorious than the temple that Solomon built? Or is this pointing ahead to something? And I just have to believe it's pointing to something greater. So let's read on. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, we live after the cross. And according to the new covenant, where is the place where God's glory dwells? I'm looking at it here. It's you. It's us. The people of God is where God dwells. The the, the temple is no longer made out of bricks and cedar and gold and silver. It's made out of redeemed, broken humans, redeemed for all eternity as children of God. And that's the place where he grants his peace. The temple, it says, is going to be decorated with silver and gold. It's a glorious thing. 1 Corinthians 3 describes uh, our lives as kind of a building project. And it says there's no foundation that can be built on other than Jesus Christ. He's our foundation. And it says, and we build on that with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. It says at the end, our work is going to be tested with fire. What's going to remain? What things are going to pass through that fire? What is eternal? Well, that which is eternal is the kingdom of God and his redeemed children his people we are the eternal things all of our human pursuits that we throw all of our time and energy and everything into that are not oriented around the glory of God and his eternal kingdom will ultimately pass away 
They won't stand. The things that are eternal, that's what's going to remain. And by orienting our lives around the mission of God, we're giving this really great opportunity to participate in the building of the glorious temple of his people. See, just like is this Old Testament story of Haggai, uh, God didn't need their help. He could have just, boom, spoken a word, and there would have been a glorious temple. But he was inviting his people in to participate. Well, same thing. God is the one who saves. But he invites his people graciously to have a hand in that process. And every one of us longs to be transcendent in some way. We want our lives to count for more than just our futile human existence, that we're here for so many years and then we're gone. We want something that's bigger than us that will outlive us, to be a part of something grander. That's put in us because God's placed eternity in the heart of man. So we desire for something greater. And by participating in the mission of God and the building of his temple where his glory is put on display, we actually get to be a part of something eternal. That's the motive for living on mission. You want to be a part of something that isn't going to just get eaten by worms and and gaunt, you know? Be a part of the mission of God and the building of his glorious temple. It's awesome. And that, that eternal reward is great, but there's a reward in the here and now. When, when you have the privilege of watching a person who was just at the end of their rope, where, where they were just beaten down by this sinful world and their own sinful choices, and they were without hope, and God brings them to life before your eyes, and you see that, that is such a cause of joy. It's one of the most fulfilling things I ever get to experience is watching a life broken by sin being transformed and that person come alive and and live for the glory of God. Now let's go back um, in our Hebrew, I mean, excuse me, our Haggai passage, he talks about once more, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And this passage is quoted in Hebrews 12, where he says, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And going back to our contrast of the natural mind versus the mind of Christ, natural mind generally sees any kind of shaking as bad. You know, we want our just comfortable groove to stay where it is and, and things get shaken up and we see it as bad. But the mind of Christ will actually see God's good work. And to us who are Christians, um, that shaking of God is intended to take away some of the other priorities in our life. There's things that we are just too invested in that are not of eternal value. And sometimes God will come along and he'll shake us up and challenge us to reorient our priorities. He wants to remove those temporary things and give us more of the things of eternal value, to to call us to a place where we participate in things that are of a greater, lasting value. But flip it around. To the person who's not a Christian... The shaking is removing the false gods, the things that they have put their trust in. That is when people will very often begin 
to listen to God when their life is shaken up and things are um, unsettled. We talk about things that are hard to do. I'll tell you what's hard to do. Convince a person who's just killing it on every front right now that they need a savior, right? That's when they go, well, your religion's a crutch, and why would I want to become a pathetic dependent like you are, you know, or whatever snarky answer they got, right? But they're just like, I'm crushing it, and I don't need your religion. Get out of my face, you know? And so maybe, uh, you know, if you've had a bad experience witnessing and tried knocking on a stranger's door on a Saturday morning or something really fun like that, you know, you, you get those kind of reactions. But when a person's life is coming apart there tends to be a more humble response and an openness to the gospel. And I just thought back on all these years. Um, I can't think of a single adult that I saw, you know, come humbly and repent when they were just on top of their game. Generally, there was some kind of disturbance in their life that got their attention and they started seeking the Lord. And um, around us, there's people whose lives are being shaken right now, okay? You don't have to go down to the mean streets and uh, hang out by the needle exchange or something like that. There's people out here in the suburbs whose lives are being disrupted. And um, that disruption, that shaking in their lives provides us an opportunity to step in and represent Jesus. So I just, you know, wrote down some thoughts. This is not a comprehensive list, but some things where shaking might be occurring in, you know, your, your place of work, your children's school, your school, just your neighborhood. First one that comes up for me is, is foster care and family breakdown. And I just have to say, uh, I've watched over the years as you guys have grown into that mission, and, and nothing could make me more proud or happy than to see you guys doing that. And all the ways, whether you're on the foster or the adopt side or CASA or respite care or support or any of those things. But if you want to talk about a person whose life's been turned upside down, it's a child who's been removed from their home, and, they, and they're put in the home of a stranger. And they need the security and love that Jesus can provide in, in that situation. But, you know, on the flip side, uh, parents who, through whatever circumstances, have had their children taken away from them, now their lives are turned upside down. And that's a really good opportunity for them to hear about Jesus and the gospel solution to the problems that have brought them to that place. In the same vein, uh, divorce or maybe just a breakup of people who have been living together for years. You know, people who put their trust, this is the one, I thought I could depend on him or her, and then they, they left me, and now what, you know? And they need to know about the one who will never leave them or forsake them, the one who will love them with a pure and undying love. Uh, abusive relationships. These are more common than we realize, but emotionally and, and uh, physically abusive relationships happen all the time. And uh, there's been a couple of times where uh, either Paul or I or both of us have actually gone with a, a woman to take him down to the magistrate to take out a restraining order. They were terrified. They didn't know what to do. And they just needed a person to step in there and take them by the arm and say, I'm going to walk with you through this process. And it helped them get some stability and safety in their life. That's just being Jesus. And guess what? When you do that, it really opens up some dialogue to talk about Jesus, our defender, right? Um, 
drug problems. You know, we deal a lot with people kind of on the far end of the spectrum, meth and heroin and stuff, but um, uh, the prescription drug epidemic is is just rampant right here in the burbs. It's all around. And um, people get into all kinds of trouble. And then, you know, alcohol abuse problems and driving under the influence. And, you know, there there, there might be a person at your work that gets, uh, you know, gets a an infraction for some problems with substance abuse and they get kind of ordered for some treatment or maybe a neighbor that got uh, a sentence for uh, driving under the influence and they're ordered for some treatment. You know, a great practical thing you can do is say they're going to be mandated to go to some 12-step meetings. Say, can I go to one of your meetings with you sometime just to support you in this? I'd like to walk along with you. And then take them out for coffee and ask them to tell you their story. And if they're involved in a 12-step, they're learning how to tell their story. So you can invite them. Tell me your story. And guess what? That becomes a two-way street. Because you sit and you listen to their story. And then, now let me tell you my story. Tell you about the hero in my story. Okay, these are things where you can just step into a place of brokenness and have an opportunity to just start talking naturally, not awkwardly, about Jesus, the answer. Other things that come up, a health uh, crisis, you know, a couple of times where I've gone, I just sat with a person in their house when they were going through chemotherapy or something. Their life hangs in the balance, they don't know, they're lonely, miserable, just a presence, a loving presence sitting with that person. Uh, somebody who's lost a job, going through a financial crisis. Maybe that's the time when you open up your wallet and you be generous with them. And they try to refuse it and they say, no, no. And I say, no, my God has been generous with me and I would like to be generous with you. Death in the family, depression, anxiety. You know, our, our, the numbers are ridiculous in America these days for people who have anxiety disorders and depression. So high. There's people around you everywhere that are struggling with this, and they need to know the Prince of Peace. And so these are just practical things. So let me just close this up here with a couple of just maybe practical suggestions. Uh, I really wanted to go after your heart today and not so much the how-to, but here's a couple of how-tos. Um, share your struggles your objections. We're going to have some community group questions. Get with some people and get honest about it because I'm not standing up here as a person that just gets up every day and just lives on mission 100% successful. I struggle sharing the gospel with people, okay? And the person sitting next to you struggles. None of us have got this down. Jesus is the only one who could live on mission 100% of the time. We all struggle. So talk to some other people who find this difficult That kind of lets us maybe feel not so alone, a little comforted. Then start praying for each other in those areas where our struggle is. Don't do it solo. Find some people you can team up with, your community group or those people that you're close to. You know, if there's a person at your work that you feel like God wants you to engage with, you start sharing that with the other people in your life. Tell them about the situation. Get them praying with you. Create some accountability so then they can ask you, hey, did you ever invite that person to lunch? Or better yet, Make it a, a group thing. You know, sometimes an awkward one-on-one, I'm going to witness to you, feels like a job interview, and it's kind of like full of tension. And, you know, just inviting somebody over to dinner with a couple other people or going out, it's, it's, it, may, it just takes it a little bit off. So become a team player. Tag along with someone who's gifted. You know, here in your church, you've got some people who are much more naturally gifted, how God has wired and gifted them to do these kind of things. Go with them because the things of God are much more readily caught 
than taught. Me standing here talking to you for 40 minutes doesn't accomplish it. Going with somebody and seeing how they do it and then getting drawn in, that makes it way, way easier. Look around. Who in your sphere of influence is being shaken up right now? Who's that person in your neighborhood or your workplace or wherever that you could see somebody that they're struggling and then just step in, begin to intentionally engage with them relationally and talk to them and look for those opportunities for that conversation to go from what's the problem to Jesus is the answer, you know, and, and it's just natural. So let's end with a verse out of Psalm 116. And I think this is the ultimate for me motive to live on mission. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. To just stop and think, you know, the more years we have in the church, sometimes we start taking for granted the great gift of salvation. But all of us were broken and hopeless. We had no hope, no choice, no eternal destiny other than a bad one. And the Lord stepped into that brokenness and saved us. And if we remember that and reflect on that, it should cause worship and thanks to well up in our hearts. And from that place of thankfulness, well, that should spill over. I am thankful for what Jesus has done for me. And I want to share that with somebody else who's being brought low right now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the great gift of salvation. There really is nothing that compares with the God of the universe seeing a broken person like me and stepping in to my mess and saving me. God, would you cause us all to have a greater appreciation for the gift of salvation, to really value what you have done for us. God, would you help us to value the things that you value more? God, to um, have more of an eternal perspective on the things that fill up our life. God, to be willing to let go of some things that need to be put aside so we can live for things that are of greater value. God, would you give us boldness to reach out. Give us eyes to see those people who are struggling, who you're working in their lives right around us. And then to have the boldness to step in and initiate conversations that would lead into the gospel. So would you give grace to all of us, God, to be faithful and to participate willingly and joyfully in your work and to see more of your glory displayed around us as we are obedient to your call. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.